On December 11, 1998, NASA launched the Mars or Climate Orbiter. It was a, a $326.6 million project intended to study the atmosphere around Mars to map any surface changes to the planet and to serve as a link in the communication chain between Mars and any future, or between Earth and any future landers on Mars. Everything went well in the launch, as far as they could tell. There was no problems. The orbiter traveled 223 million miles to Mars. It took nine months to travel there. And it arrived in September 20, or 1999. Flight operators at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories, or JPL, in Pasadena, California, sent, had to send four different course corrections, which seemed odd to them to have to do that to get the orbiter in the right location to accomplish its job. And then shortly after that, on September 23rd, just a few days after it arrived at the planet, they lost all communication with the orbiter. As they investigated, what they determined was that it got too close to Mars' gravitational pull. It was sucked down in the atmosphere and burned up. They also discovered in their investigation that there was a communication problem between JPL and the orbiter. It's a very common problem. It's a very common problem on Earth. The communication problem was, while JPL was sending very clear commands, the orbiter was reinterpreting those commands and fulfilling them according to their desire, its desire, rather than JPL's desire. And here's why. Uh, the flight guidance system on the orbiter was developed by Lockheed Martin. And when they developed the flight computer for the orbiter, they used U.S. customary measuring units like feet, and yards, and miles. But the computers at JPL were communicating in metric. So when JPL sent up a 500 whatever course correction, 500 kilometers, the orbiter translated that as 500 miles and went much lower than it was ever intended. The results were catastrophic failure. It's a common problem, and if you've been married for any length of time, you understand this is a common problem. I didn't read, I didn't read the book, but many years ago the book was Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. We could retitle it today, Men Speak U.S. Units of Measure and Women Speak Metric. That's kind of the way it worked out for that relationship, and that's the way it works out for many relationships. And when we talk about love, there's multiple definitions given. And how you define that is crucial to your relationships, but it's mission critical to how you fulfill God's commands. So God issues the command for us to love one another, but if we don't use his dictionary, and we use ours to do our own dictionary to define the word, it often results in catastrophic failure. Our world, as you know, is filled with definitions of love. Some are good and many are bad. Some of the definitions of love seem to be written in stone, while others seem to be etched in sidewalk chalk. 
They come and they go. They get washed away and they get changed. Some definitions are unmovable. Others change with the whims of man. But when it comes to the way that Jesus loves us and the way that we are told to love one another, the only definition that counts is God's. God is love. And we wouldn't even know love if he didn't reveal it to us first. So he has every right and all the authority in the world to define what love is. He gets to tell us this is what love is and this is what it's not. And we don't get to dispute that meaning. We don't get to alter it and make it whatever we want it to be. God defines love throughout the scripture, through his words and through his actions. The greatest demonstration of his love is the sending of his son to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the mercy seat or the sacrifice for our salvation. If we are going to love like Jesus... We must define love like him. First Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, and it's for good reason. It talks a great deal about love. The context of First Corinthians 13 is in this, this greater conversation about spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, Paul introduced this topic of spiritual gifts and the importance of using these spiritual gifts and how all believers are gifted to benefit the body. And after explaining all of these gifts, he says, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is love. And he begins chapter 13 with these three, these first three verses, which we looked at last time. when he said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I had all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul has said, if I have the most spectacular gifts you can have, if I have all the wisdom, all the knowledge that there is, if I know everything that can be known, If I can do anything, but I don't have love, it's all meaningless. The most spectacular spiritual gifts, the greatest ability in the world, and even the most magnanimous generosity that you can think of, without love, it's all worthless. He says, I I accomplish nothing, I gain nothing, I am nothing. So he's trying to put everything in perspective. While it's important that we serve in the church and it's important that we find out and use our spiritual gifts for God's glory, for the benefit of our brothers, Paul says, if you're not doing it out of love, it's meaningless. That's the most important driving force. The most important thing that you and I can do in our service to God is to love him and to love one another. And if we don't, and we miss that part, It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how broad our ministries reach. If we're not doing it out of love, it's ultimately meaningless. 
So Paul sets out to define, to a degree, what love is. And he gives us 15 descriptive statements to help us define Christ-like love. He uses 15 verbs to show us that love is not an idea, it's an action. It's not just a, it's not proven by words, it's proven by works. Love is not matter of sentiment, it's a matter of service. Love is not something that we just declare, it's something that we demonstrate. These 15 phrases, Paul uses two statements to describe what love is, then followed by eight statements telling us what love is not, what love does not do, and then five more statements telling us what love does. We'll use the same outline that Paul used, describing what love is, then what love doesn't do or is not, and then what love does do. We're only going to get through verse 4 this morning. We have communion that'll take up some of our time at the end of the service. We should point out that that Paul's not giving us an exhaustive definition of love here in these verses, in verses 4 through 7. There's more to it than that, and we need to take the entirety of the Scripture to define it clearly. For instance, Paul doesn't talk about the sacrifice that love demands, but Ephesians chapter 5 tells husbands to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's a sacrificial nature involved in love. And there's other passages that talk about love that we would have to look at to get a more full definition. But this is a very good start to tell us what it is. Starting verse 4, what love is. First statement there, love is patient. Love is patient. Macro through meo is the word there, and it means long-suffering. Macro means large, great, huge. So huge or large or many, much, long-suffering. The idea is to have the unwavering spirit that holds out for a long period of time before reacting in anger, before reacting or in passion or or any other kind of negative response. One author defined it this way, it's a long time fuming before becoming flames. And you can understand that. Right? You've met people who don't have there aren't long suffering. They have a well I, I just have a short fuse. That's their excuse. I just have a short fuse. Or I'm Irish. <laughs> or I'm German. Or I'm human. Third century church leader John Christostom said this. Patience is a word which is used of a man who is wronged and who has the ability to avenge himself but never will do it. It's a good definition of long-suffering. Patience is what we want others to have with us. And we hope we never have to exercise on the benefit of somebody else. Patience is the one virtue that most Christians are terrified to pray for. Because as soon as you pray for patience, God says, sure, let me teach you patience. And gives you people that you have to be patient with. 
God shows his love through his patience. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the thought was, if God is so powerful and he hates sin so much, why doesn't he just judge sin? Well, the answer is because he's patient with you. And he would rather you come to repentance than have to destroy you. In the late 1800s, Robert Ingersoll, who was a lawyer, a nationally sought-out speaker, and an avowed atheist, used to stop in the middle of his tirades against the existence of God and say, quote, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said, end quote. And then he would use the fact that after five minutes, God had not killed him as proof that God doesn't exist. I, for one, am very thankful that God doesn't exhaust his patience after five minutes. I would have been dead 50-some years ago. And I think most of us are thankful that God is patient with us and he's long-suffering. And that's an example, that is a, a manifestation of his love for us. Paul's life was an illustration of God's patience. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul said, It is a trustworthy statement, I'm sorry, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me is the foremost, that is foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I am the worst sinner that I know. And God showed patience with me. Christ showed patience in order to bring me to salvation as an example for us to be patient with other sinners. Paul would say this, you don't know a sinner as bad as me. And if Jesus was patient with me, you and I need to be patient with other people. The loving patience that God has shown us is characteri- characterizes love and is to characterize our love for one another. We're to be patient with immature believers do immature things. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not, but immature believers do immature things. That's why they're immature believers. And you might be aware of this. Mature believers do immature things. Because as mature as we think we are, we're really not all that mature. We still have a long way to go. And being patient with mature believers who make immature mistakes shows love. Patience with brothers or sisters who are caught in sin. Somebody once was talking about the the gospel armor from Ephesians 6 and said, isn't it odd that we who have the our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace have the belt of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, or the, head of, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the sword of the Spirit spend the vast majority of our time polishing our armor or fighting with one another. 
It's a well-documented fact that Christians are very good at shooting their wounded. Showing patience. Which is what we're called to do. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. When people are in error, when people are caught up in sin, when they're brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to show them patience. Specifically, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to show patience for those brothers and sisters of ours who don't see things the way we see things. Who have strong feelings about things that may be in opposition to the way we have strong feelings about things. I'm not talking theology. I'm talking philosophy and and practice. Hardly anything divides the church today more than politics. And people are very passionate, particularly in the Western world, about politics. Well, you may think somebody that doesn't share your political view is in error. Well, be patient. Maybe you'll come around to their way of thinking. We need to show patience when we're not treated the way that we think we should be treated. And we all have a way that we think we should be treated. And we're not treated that way. We need to be patient with people. We need to seek understanding too. All of these things can be seen in the patience of Jesus with his disciples. Jesus was patient with immature, whiny, selfish men. Who wanted everything that they wanted and wanted people to see things their way. When, when they were going into a village, uh, in a Samaritan village, and they wouldn't receive Jesus, James and John said, want us to call fire down from heaven and kill him? No, I don't. That was the response of Jesus. Let's go to the next town. Well, there's a lot of patience there, right? Hey, they don't, they don't believe like we believe. Let's kill them now. Sounds like Islam. If we're going to love like Jesus, we must define love like him. Second, verse 4, love is kind. Love is kind. It means to be gracious, to be useful. Literally, to show gracious service to each other. That's what it means to be kind. We could state it this way. To be kind is to show meaningful service to others. Love doesn't merely endure with patience, but it actively provides for the uh, gracious service to others. Even with those with whom we must be patient. We graciously serve those who we have to exercise patience with as well. Jesus, again, is the prime example. We see his kindness at work throughout his ministry. Every place he went, when somebody was sick or demon-possessed, he would heal them or cast the demons out. And he did this because of his kindness. We see his kindness and his compassion as being inseparable. Listen to Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. When he went ashore, that's Jesus... He saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. So Jesus saw the large crowd. He didn't just say, I got, I I feel for you. I have compassion for you. Okay. I'll see you later. 
and go do something else. I have compassion for you, so let me meet your greatest need. In this case, is healing. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. This is the feeding of the 4,000. I want you to feed these people because I have compassion on them. I want them to pass out on the way home. Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 through 34. Two blind men were sitting by the road having a hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, and they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 41. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling at his knees before him, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Luke chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when Jesus saw her, he felt compassion for her. And said to her, do not weep. For he came up and he came up and he touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And he gave and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus moving with compassion that prompts him to heal. It prompts him to cast out demons. It prompts him to serve the people. And he would say, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. The kindness of God is linked to our salvation. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If God was not kind to us, we would never have the chance to repent. It's his kindness that drew us to himself. It's his kindness that put the gospel in our circle so that we could hear it. It's his kindness that enabled us with the faith to believe and repent and be saved. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so that being justified by his grace, we'd be made, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's by the kindness and compassion of Jesus Christ that we're saved. Love is kind. And love isn't just say kind things and think kind thoughts. Love does kind things. Now, we cannot show kindness in the same extent that Jesus did. We can't go around healing people. We don't have that power to do that. We can't give ourselves as a sacrifice for the sins of others. But we can share Christ with them, and we can show kindness to them through our acts and our actions, through our words. If we're going to love like Jesus, 
We must define love like he does. He said love is patient and love is kind. Then he moves on to what love is not. And love does not do. He gives us the opposite. In fact, he's going to give us eight statements. We won't get through them all this morning. But he's going to give us eight statements of what love does not do. What love is not like. Because it's often beneficial for us to understand the meaning of something by seeing the opposite. By seeing what it's not. And he starts with love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Your version may say does not envy. And that's a good translation. The idea is admiring something that someone else possesses to the point of resentment. The problem with envy and jealousy is it begins with a comparison of wanting what somebody else has. Be it a possession, could be a relationship, could be success, could be health, could be a talent, could be a drama-free life, could be a waistline, could be any number of things. That we want what somebody else has. I just want what they have. To the point that we begin to resent them because they have it and we don't. And I want you to understand, when you get to that point, what you're basically saying as a believer is, God is not good to me. Because if God was good to me, He would give me things that I desire. He would give me all these things that I want, and I would be content. Rather than practicing contentment because the Scripture says, be content. Love does not envy. Rather, it rejoices. It doesn't envy other people because they have something that you don't have and you think, I just need that. If I had that, I'd be happy. It's I want that. It's happy for them. It rejoices with them. We're thankful that they don't have the drama-filled life that we may have. We're thankful that they are successful more so than we may be. And on and on. While wanting, while wanting what somebody else has is the most common form of jealousy, there's a, actually a more sinister form of jealousy and envy. And it's wanting something so bad that if you don't have it, you don't want anybody else to have it either. If I can't have it, they shouldn't have it. Jesus points out this type of jealousy in the parable of the generous landlord in Matthew chapter 20. Landlord goes out, landowner rather, goes out, and he hires men in the common marketplace at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he agrees with them, you'll work for me all day, a 12-hour day, you'll work for me all day and I'll pay you a denarius. It was a fair wage, it was a common wage, it was what the average day laborer made, and these men agreed. We'll do it. So they go out and they start working in the field. Three hours later, the man goes back out to the market and he hires more people. So at 9 a.m. he hires more people. And then he goes out at 3 p.m. and he hires more people. And then he goes out at 5 p.m. with only an hour left to work and he hires more people and they go out and work for an hour. At the end of the day, at 6 o'clock, it's payday because you paid every day 
and there was nobody named FICA that was taking a piece of it. They got the whole denarius. And he started with the reverse, the people who were hired last, and they came up and they were paid a denarius. They only worked an hour. People had worked all day, dirty, exhausted. They're thinking, <laughs> we're going to get rich. This is going to be great. We're going to get a big fat bonus. And they got up and put their hand out and they were given a denarius, which is exactly what they bargained for. It's exactly the deal. Nobody was stealing from them. They got exactly what they agreed to. But they were angry. It's not right. That's not fair. We worked all day and we only got a stinking denarius. You gave these people who only worked an hour the same as you gave us. That's not fair. It's not right. They shouldn't have that much or we should have more. And the landowner said, hey, are you envious because I'm generous? I gave you what we agreed to. I didn't withhold anything from you. If he hadn't hired anybody else and they'd worked all day and just got their denarius, they would all want to went away happy. It's the fact that other people got the same amount that made them envious and jealous. The point of Jesus' parable is God's grace is not based on merit. He doesn't give us grace based on merit. It's based on his goodness and his generosity. And in that, we should all rejoice. If you were saved as a child and you served the Lord all the days of your life and you die as an old person, or somebody gets saved on their deathbed, we should rejoice just the same. This is God's goodness. This is God's grace. We're not to be jealous. Jealousy leads to all sorts of evil. In fact, most evil that you can think of in some way has its source in jealousy. Satan's heavenly rebellion was out of jealousy. I want to be like God. I want to have the authority he has. I want to rise to the level that he is. I want everybody to bow to me. In fact, Satan would try that same ploy with Jesus. If you'll just bow to me, I'll give you all this kingdom in the world. Hey, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, jump off the pinnacle of this temple and the angels will come and catch you. Let me appeal to your pride. The appeal to your jealousy. Eve's desire to eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit in the garden, was a result of jealousy. Satan said, God doesn't want you to know everything, and if you eat this fruit, you'll know everything. And Eve said, I want to know everything. Cain killing Abel was out of jealousy. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and didn't accept Cain's. And Cain didn't like the comparison, so he killed his brother. Saul tried to kill David out of jealousy. Absalom tried to kill his dad, David, out of jealousy. Solomon's sons divided the kingdom because of jealousy. Even the disciples, on the night Jesus would be betrayed, argued among themselves of which one of them would be greatest in the kingdom. Out of jealousy. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? The, the author there, Solomon, is saying, listen, wrath is bad, anger's destructive, but jealousy's the worst natural disaster you can think of. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You see how wicked jealousy is. That God's word says jealousy comes from hell. It is demonic. There's no room for any form of jealousy when it comes to loving God and loving one another. We don't have the freedom to practice jealousy. We don't have the right to be jealous or envious of anyone or anything. Verse 4 continues, love does not brag. Your version may say boast. Love does not brag or boast. The idea is to be pretentious. Using a vernacular, it's being a windbag. To flaunt oneself, to think or act as if they are superior in some way. If jealousy is wanting what someone else has, Bragging is wanting someone else to be jealous of you. It's presenting things in such a way with the hopes of making them envy you. Oh, I want to be you. I want to be you when I grow up. I want to be, I want to have what you have. We've, most of us have met those kind of people. I mean, you could, you can meet them and five minutes later, you know how much they spent on their watch. Just kind of comes out in conversation. Hi, how are you? Good. My name's John. Yeah, hey, my name's Fred. Yeah. Oh, let me see what time it is. Oh, yeah, my, my Rolex that I spent uh, $3,000 on. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. I've, I, I played golf with a man one day. It's a three-hour round, four-hour round of golf. And, boy, I could tell you at the end of that round how much he spent on his car, how much he spent on his house, how much money he made over the year. I was very impressed. I don't remember his name. (laughs) Boasting and bragging are the opposite qualities of humility and meekness. And that's what characterizes Christ, is humility and meekness. If anybody had a right to brag, it would have been Jesus, right? But he didn't see equality with God, a thing that he must grasp onto but emptied himself, humbled himself, and became obedient, put on the form of a servant. If anybody had a right to brag, it's Jesus. I mean, he could do anything he wanted to do. He could have, he could have embarrassed anybody. He could have sat down and done the New York Times crossword puzzle in a minute. He could, have, he could outsmart anybody he wanted to at any moment in time. But he was humble and meek. And he didn't flaunt his authority. He didn't flaunt his power. He used his power out of compassion for people and as evidence of his message. But genuine love, Christ-like love, is always focused on others. Boasting is self-focused. Bragging is self-concerned. That's why there's no place for it in love. Because there's no place in love for self-focus. 
Love is always focused on others. Christ-like love requires us to consider others to be more important than ourselves. If we're going to love like Jesus, we must define love like Jesus does. And then verse 4 ends with, love is not, doesn't, I will add the word love just for the ease of reading it. Love is not arrogant. Your version may say proud or puffed up. Puffed up is a good word because it, it's puffed up like a bellows. You know those, those things you use to fan a fire, the old-fashioned things? It's when it's expanded, it's puffed up. That's what this word intends to communicate. Arrogance must have been a real problem in the church of Corinth. Must have been an extreme problem because of of the seven times the word arrogant is used in the Bible, six times is in 1 Corinthians. So clearly there was a problem with arrogance in Corinth. Our society seems to honor a certain amount of arrogance. You know, the, the athlete that makes a great play and then brags about it, gets all the camera time. I love to see the team that's in like eighth place make a shot, you know, at the win a game and we're number one because this looks bad. Yeah. We seem to tolerate and even encourage a certain amount of arrogance in certain things. But like the braggart, the arrogant are filled with pride that keep them from seeing their need for God. When they're arrogant, I don't need anything. I got it all. I, 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 I can take care of myself. I can figure everything else out. Then they never come to the point where they, a point of humility where they see their need for God. This is why pride goes before destruction. Jesus showed us what it means to be the smartest guy in the room, in any room, have the power to command nature, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, even enough authority to call down ten legions of angels and wipe out his enemies. But he didn't do any of those things to destroy his enemies. He humbly served people. God hates pride. In fact, God opposes the proud. If you want to be on the opposite side of God, it's pride. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I can't tell you the number of counseling issues that I've dealt with that don't boil down to pride. Selfishness, which is another word for pride. Where a couple is having problems because one or both of them are prideful and selfish. They won't swallow their pride. 
They won't admit their problems. They want the other person to serve them instead of serving the other person. Pride is self-focused, but Christ-like love is always others-focused. That's always others-focused. And we're not talking about just your immediate family. We're talking about your spiritual family. If we're going to love like Jesus, we must define love like He does. That's the first five of 15. And we'll try to do the next ten next time. I'm not guaranteeing anything. The dictionary that we use to define love is mission critical. And using the wrong dictionary to define love will lead to catastrophic failure. Let's define love the way Jesus does. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you love us and that your definition of love is correct. It's right. It's godly. Father, may we recognize that though we fall short more times than we would like, may we recognize that it's your it's your definition of love that we must adhere to. Father, may all of us examine the way that we love one another, even our enemies, and see if it lines up with how your word defines love. And Father, if it does not, give us the courage to confess that. Give us the humility to confess our sin and seek to love as you've called us to. Now, Father, it's because of love that you sent your Son. And we will look forward to honoring your Son now as we partake of the communion elements. We pray that you are glorified. We pray that you're exalted as we focus on the death of Christ until he comes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.